Hi, I'm Ann Powers, critic and correspondent for NPR Music and co-founder of Turning the Tables, the project that considers the canon of popular music and lets the weirdness in. Okay, well, it's Kate Bush who lets the weirdness in, <laughs> as we hear in her song, Leave It Open. But in Turning the Tables, we imagine a music world in which the voices and stories of women and others who've been pushed to the margins in pop music grab and hold center stage. And I'm Marissa LaRusso. I'm an associate editor for NPR Music, and I edited the Turning the Table series, Records That Changed Our Lives. In 2021, we published 12 essays by women and non-binary writers, each centered on one record by a woman musician that changed their life. And we're going to hear from a bunch of those writers on the All Songs Considered podcast every week in March. So, Marissa, I'm so excited to be here talking about this fantastic series, which, you know, it went to so many places, and it really (laughs) was not just about people's encounters with albums, but about the development of your life, you know, of life phases, of challenges, (laughs) of growing up. And I think it turned that question, which album changed your life, kind of on its head. But let's get into today's picks. We both picked albums that some people might find challenging, that when they came out, they were greeted as like really out there, really, they really weird, like Kate Bush says. But now, partly thanks to feminist writing about them, they're considered classics. I think we should start with your pick, because in some ways, it's the definitive album by a woman that's been reclaimed and has helped change what's considered great within music. I love that explanation of it. So I wrote about Plastic Ono Band from Yoko Ono, came out in 1970, and like you said, a pretty challenging record, kind of avant-garde rock album. And of course, the main focal point of this record is Yoko Ono's amazing, powerful, very unique voice. and very sometimes like erotic sounding voice. A huge challenge to what people expected from music, I think, at that time when it came out. Absolutely, let's hear a little bit of the song Why. So what was your first experience with this album? So I actually first heard this album because of you, Anne. I first heard it in 2017 when you and I were working on the very first iteration of the Turning the Tables project. And you asked me to write a blurb about Plastic Ono Band for our list of the greatest albums made by women. And I didn't really have a background in Yoko's music or the scene that she was part of, but I also wasn't going to say, no, Anne, I'm not going to write that blurb because I don't know (laughs) what I'm talking about. I knew about Yoko as a performance artist, but I wasn't super familiar with her music. And I knew that a lot of people have written about Yoko who didn't know what they were talking about or didn't respect her as an artist or didn't really understand the artistic scene that she was part of. And I was really nervous that I was going to be one of those writers. And so that was how I went into my first few listens of the record. Well, you see, right away, we're talking about issues of authority and who gets to claim authority about what's good and even what artists perceive as having any authority. Because I think one of the things about Yoko was that 
she was considered, you know, just a rock wife, right? Like she wasn't considered the artist she really was. She was already an established artist when this came out, you know? Totally, right. And yeah, because that first Turning the Tables list was this big feminist intervention, I was like, okay, I don't want to be one of those people who's treating Yoko's art like she is some rock wife. I want to be understanding her work and taking it seriously. But I definitely had trouble connecting with it the first time I heard it. And, you know, it doesn't really rely on these, like, straightforward rock and roll songwriting structures that I was used to hearing. And the way that Yoko uses her voice is very unique. It's not like a straightforward lyric sheet you could read and just kind of grab onto and analyze. And so, yeah, I just had this feeling of, I know that this is great. It is on our list of the greatest. But yeah, what if I don't get it? That question of authority was really central to me. Bring me back to that moment, like, listening to her. And I know... I know you, Marissa, so I know you read up on the history, you did the homework, you you know, you could rattle off any facts about her that were necessary, but how did it feel in that moment? Did you feel like you had to throw all that out the window or what? It's interesting that you say that because my first instinct was, oh, I should do my homework. I had this really fixed idea of what it would mean to be authoritative enough to write about this record for our list. And I was like, yeah, you have to read the books, you have to know the stats, you have to know the history. And that was intimidating, but also I can do that. So I spent a weekend just kind of listening to the record and Googling and trying to find reviews, contemporary writing about Yoko, but also how she was received in her moment, read reviews Mm -hmm. from that time, read about artists who were inspired by her, who considered themselves part of her musical lineage. Um, And that was such a wake-up call for me to remember that everyone has to do homework, right? No one just wakes up in the morning and knows everything there is to know about Yoko Ono. Probably Yoko herself would say that even she is not a total <laughs> expert on the work of Yoko Ono. You know, even even if you care about something from a feminist perspective or you develop a feminist way of looking at things, you still need to read the books to understand what's going on. And then that can open a whole world of kind of authority or comfort or expertise or whatever you want to call it. But at the same time, this is a kind of a trap for music critics. And Mm -hmm. what would it mean to just write from your feelings about Yoko Ono? I think something that I noticed when I was reading all of the write-ups on that list of our greatest albums after I had felt authoritative enough and sent in my Yoko blurb and was reading the whole list, a lot of people were writing from that place in our list. A lot of people were writing and saying, I heard this album as a teenager and this is what it meant to me and that's... And so many other women felt that way, and that's why this record deserves to be on a list of the greatest. And that, I think, is just as valuable as my little well-researched Yoko Ono blurb or probably, you know, anything that you wrote for that list, Anne, that came from your decades of experience as a critic and a fan and a listener. Yeah, that was something that I loved about that project was the way that we did think about expertise as meaning a lot of different things, even if that wasn't something that I understood going into the project to start. And if you want to see the list that launched our whole project that we're talking about right now, you can go to npr.org slash turning the tables. Well, you did get to that place, though, Marissa, where you were feeling this record. Yeah, totally. You know, I think when we started this essay series, I thought a life-changing album is something that you hear maybe once as a teenager, and then it blows your mind, and that's what changes your life. But I think through writing this essay and through reading your essay and a lot of the essays in the series, I realized what Plastic Ono meant to me or how it changed my life is that I thought that I had all the tools I needed when I first heard it and I had that initial experience of it. And then when I heard it in different contexts over the next few years, 
it meant something totally different and taught me some new lessons. And to me, that's like really the hallmark of a life-changing record is something that sticks with you. And I know you you had a particular moment at the Hirshhorn Museum when mm-hmm. you heard Kim Gordon perform a Yoko Ono tribute. And I'd love for you to read about read an excerpt from your essay about that experience for us. So just for some context, this was, like you said, a tribute concert at the Hirshhorn, and Kim was one of the performers, and she did this piece called Voice Piece for Soprano, which is a a performance instructional piece that Yoko wrote. And the instructions for the piece are scream, one, against the wind, two, against the wall, three, against the sky. And here's what that sounded like at the Hirshhorn. Gordon followed the checklist, moving purposefully across the stage and howling into the mic, and the crowd watched silently, enraptured. I recalled my first few listens to Plastic Ono Band, the way Ono's wordless singing had at first felt indecipherable to me, but upon repeat listens, how her articulations of pain, fear, and desperation had come to feel unambiguous. Here, too, Gordon's scream felt profoundly moving, even without a particular stated meaning. It seemed like it pushed at the limits of her physical body, like it came from both years of practice and from gut instinct at once. A binary that, as any improvisational artist will tell you, is actually not so binary at all. And it pushed us, too, as listeners, into a situation that felt intense but delicate. So were you having that kind of moment when that happened where you're like, oh, this is connecting intellectually? Or was it more just a sense of relief? Oh, I get it now. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I think... When I saw that performance, it was so intense in my body, so visceral, so communal, watching everyone else watch this. And it kind of felt like that cram session I had had where I read all the books and read all the reviews. This was like the total opposite of that, where I just felt it. And it wasn't even a question of, am I getting it? Am I feeling the right thing? It's really, I don't know, impossible to hear someone perform like Kim Gordon was performing and not feel really moved. And yeah, it just made me rethink what it meant to even have been an expert in that moment. I wouldn't say, oh, then I became an expert on Yoko Ono's performance art once I saw it performed But I know how I felt about this. And that is a form of knowledge, right? That is a form of expertise. And that is really what I took away from that performance. Totally. Embodied expertise. We need to take a quick break. But uh, when we return, we're going to talk about the album that changed my life. Support for NPR and the following message come from State Farm, the 2022 lead sponsor of NPR Music. For the past three years, State Farm has supported the Tiny Desk Contest, NPR Music's call to musicians to submit their video of an original song. Songs can be from any genre, and artists can get creative. They just need to have a desk somewhere in the frame. Entries have featured surprises like cello paired with an electric guitar or a song performed at a lemonade stand, and it pays to catch the judge's attention. The winner gets to perform their very own Tiny Desk Concert. State Farm is proud to support the contest, entered by thousands of musicians and bands, giving listeners the chance to discover new artists and genres. Explore entries at tinydeskcontest.npr.org and keep the discovery going when you check out State Farm's surprisingly great rates. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. 
It's All Songs Considered. I'm Marissa LaRusso. I'm here with Anne Powers. And Anne, I would love for you to tell me a little bit about the record that changed your life. Well, we heard a little bit from this album when we started talking today, but let's just have a little more from Kate Bush's The Dreaming. The song that we're going to listen to is Leave It Open. So I was like the quintessential obnoxious arty teenager. I wanted to be a poet. I shopped at thrift stores. You know, I, I have smoked clove cigarettes in the alley before I would go to the all ages show with my best I'm friend. I'm shocked. I'm shocked, Anne. <laughs> but, you know, even with all of that, even with like my extreme artiness for a Catholic kid growing up in Seattle, Washington, I think that Plastic Ono Band would have been just too much for me. I liked that, and I, but I needed some music of my own that was mm-hmm. that was really out there, but still connected to melodies, connected to a kind of maybe a kind of sweetness. I don't know because like I was a choir kid, I needed something that I related to the theatricality of, mm-hmm. and this is where Kate Bush came in for me. So Kate Bush was kind of your gateway drug. Tell me about when you first heard this record. Uh, well. You know, you have to jump back in a tiny bit of prehistory. I've told this story a lot, but I found the first two Kate Bush albums at a rummage sale at Our Lady of Fatima, which was my parish growing up. Mm-hmm. And I remember I found the Kate Bush records and the Susie and the Banshees record, and I bought them both for like, I swear to God, 75 cents or something. Incredible. <laughs> I know. And I took them home and put them both on, and, and even Susie was a little too punk for me or something. But Kate... I don't know, you know, here was this voice, this woman who wasn't much older than me, and who seemed to have all the same preoccupations, like, you know, obviously a reader, obviously someone who imagined herself on the wily Windy Moors, uh, hanging out with Heathcliff, she sang about that in her song, Weathering Heights. So I just immediately, immediately felt like I had been seen by music. And you write in your beautiful essay about the first time you heard The Dreaming. Can you read a little bit of that? I can still remember lowering the needle onto the vinyl in that junk-furnished living room, laying on the floor, right beneath the turntable, turning up the volume until the speakers shook. The drums on The Dreaming announced it as something new. I knew next to nothing about African music at age 18, but I could recognize syncopation which brought the noise to my favorite piece of classical music, Stravinsky's Rite of Spring, and the swagger to Prince, the artist who ruled the speakers at Artie Kids' parties that year. Sat in your lap, the Dreaming's first track, hit with a huge bass drum intermingled with something else. What was it? My ears tried to grab the song's moving parts. Kate, screaming, I must admit, just when I think I'm king, I just begin. Bang, bang, Kate's brother Patty huffing and ho-ho-hoing in the background, the keyboard bouncing like wheels on cobblestone, a child's shout surfacing deep in the mix. 
and her dragon call, bold, then beaten back, then hoisting itself up again. This was the sound of a soul who believes in its own boundlessness, but can't make the feeling stick. Swagger laced with rage. I love that. I love just the image of you listening to the turntable turned up so loud and just having (laughs) your mind blown by this record. It was like a total connection for you, right? Oh, yes. I mean, I I was like so completely obsessed and in fact, kind of remained that way for many years. And I think, you know, Marissa, how kind of obsession turns into nostalgia as you Mm -hmm. get older. Mm -hmm. Like, I think especially when it comes to music that we loved and this will come up a lot in as as other writers are talking about their essays i think in the future in this podcast we long for that moment that intensity even as kind of awful as it might have been <laughs> you know? i mean it's not that fun to be 18 and be feeling too much you know it's just right. it's not that fun but when you hear the music that embodies that for you you might feel a bit of nostalgia so i think i carry a lot of nostalgia for this record But then, I don't know, returning to it more recently, I started to think a little bit differently about it. It was was kind of like your process with Yoko, but in reverse. Okay, tell me about that. Well, it's about self-confrontation around myself as a white woman who loves popular music and Kate Bush as a white woman who made music and makes music that's very informed by the music of the world, by African music, by Arabic music that she was hearing in London at that time. I don't know, I had to like do some self-critique, honestly, and question what I always read as her right to occupy other people's identities. This was a huge reason why I loved Kate Bush. I loved Kate Bush because she didn't just write love songs and she didn't just write songs that were like, me, I am a pretty young woman and I am now (laughs) going to have a, you know, crush on a boy or whatever. And even the other new wave women that I loved at that time, like Debbie Harry or Chrissy Hind, so many of their songs were about that kind of experience of falling in love or being desired or desiring. And Kate was out there writing about soldiers on the battlefield and people wandering around in the outback and people becoming animals, like turning into animals. I love that. But I came to question that easy assumption that she could not only inhabit other identities, but appropriate other yeah, people's I, sounds. <laughs> I wanted to ask, did you, I know you mentioned in your essay that when you were growing up, you didn't, you weren't super familiar with African music when you first heard this record. Did you feel like you had some kind of, um, did you feel like you understood where Kate was pulling these influences from? Or did it just feel like, oh my gosh, all of this is just coming from the mind of Kate Bush. She invented it. Oh, hell no. I did not know. I mean, I got into African music a f- few years later when I moved down to San Francisco and there was tons of uh, both immigrant bands playing in town and also just people coming through town. But even then, I think, you know, I don't know if I was making this connection. I don't know. I knew she was friends with Peter Gabriel. So maybe I thought (laughs) she got it from him and he got it from his own mind. I don't know what I was thinking, but I don't think I was doing that math. And I will say that writing this essay was my first chance to really confront these questions. And um, someone who really made me think differently about the kind of fantastical storytelling that Kate Bush does on this record was Carmen Maria Machado. 
her work and the work she's done reclaiming fantastic tales for people who do not look like uh, like a fairy Dis- tale princess <laughs> yeah, like a standard disney well now disney is you know maybe more diverse but yeah right exactly don't look like that kind of white english ideal of a fairy tale princess which kate looked like a crazy nutcase in a bat costume but she also looked like a fairy tale princess you know she did both so reading Carmen Maria Machado's work reading other women of color who have really gone deep into this territory helped me understand how to think about this record differently and ask some questions about what she was doing is there a track in particular that's a good example of you thought about it one way when you first heard it and after all of the self-examination it kind of hits different now yeah so the song I want to play is called pull out the pin So, you know, Marissa, you hear that opening keyboard part, how it, it's kind of enacting what uh, Edward Said famously called Orientalism, right? Like right. white white artists uh, appropriating elements of uh, as particularly Asian, South Asian culture as a form of exoticism. You hear, you hear that? Yeah, I can hear that. Yep. Yeah. In this song... Kate is um, embodying the spirit of a Viet Cong soldier in combat with white troops. She was very upset about the Vietnam War. Uh, she's trying to think about what had happened in that war. And while thankfully she doesn't assume some kind of crazy accent, <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, you heard her voice, she sounds weird like Kate. She, right. she's, she's still willing herself into that body, a body that isn't rightly hers. I definitely haven't haven't spent as much time with the dreaming as you have, Anne, but it definitely does give me pause. And I think, especially thinking about it in this context, when I'm also thinking about Yoko Ono's work and and just, you know, she put out Plastic Ono Band probably like a decade before Kate put out The Dreaming. Yes. And there was just so much response to that record and everything Yoko has done as an artist and as a person, so much of that response is tangled up with the racism and sexism that she's faced as a Japanese woman. Not to mention, like, on Plastic Ono Band, she's drawing on traditional Japanese vocal techniques and Western audiences had a very hard time with that. So just kind of thinking about the privilege of Kate kind of putting herself in this in this identity, in this position, writing from this perspective, and being heralded as, you know, cre- a creative storyteller when Yoko is dealing with the racism and sexism that she's facing, that definitely gives me pause. Yeah, and when I think about that time when this, uh, you know, early 80s when this music was coming out, and I think about people like Polly Styrene from X-Ray mm-hmm. Specs, and there's like a great new documentary reclaiming her importance, or um, Annabella Lewin from Bow Wow Wow, women of color who were in the scene, who were often disregarded or belittled, I think, um, not considered the creative geniuses that some uh, white women might have been. So 
this is the stuff that we like. I got to deal with this stuff, even though I felt this record so hard, and honestly, I still feel it so hard. And I, I think that's part of what it means to develop and grow as a critic, as a as a music lover. It's it's always about negotiating distances between yourself and the artist that you love or you don't get. You know, right? Other and distances. moving moving closer or moving further away from your connection to an artist kind of based on these contexts where you're hearing them, based on information that you're getting. And I think something that you and I share, Anne, is that both of us in writing these essays were kind of renegotiating that distance. I was thinking about the different contexts in which I had heard Yoko and what kind of lessons those taught me and, you know, processing a lot of that in the writing of my essay. And and you mentioned that you really reckoned with these aspects of Kate's music while you were writing the essay. That's something I really love about this series. It really, it reminds us that like that life-changing record, that life-changing moment with a record is not just, doesn't just happen in an instant. It's something that we can kind of negotiate over time. And that writing itself is about, I'm going to just do a little Yokoism here. I feel like she would do this. Like, can we make a new word that's like think, feel, or feel thinking or something? <laughs> Like that's absolutely. That's like to me. That's the essence of feminist work and feminist criticism, intersectional work, uh, intersectional criticism. It's about walking that distance between thinking and feeling, combining them, separating them out. I, where am I going with this? I don't know. Do, do you relate? I relate. I absolutely <laughs> feel that. And I and I think it goes back to something that we talked about earlier, which is, yeah, these different kinds of knowledge. The knowledge that you get from thinking, from reading a book, the knowledge that you get from feeling, from standing in the crowd at a show, and not really privileging one of those over the other, but kind of recognizing that when you put them all together, that's some of the most exciting knowledge that you can have. Well, I would love to hear what your go-to track is on the Plastic Ono Band record now, Marissa, now that you've had the think-feel experience mm. with it. <laughs> Great question, Anne. Lately, I've been revisiting the track Greenfield Morning, I Pushed an Empty Baby Carriage All Over the City. It's a track that it was inspired by something that Yoko wrote in her amazing instructional art book, Grapefruit. But as I've been listening to it lately, it has this drone-ish kind of like psychedelic rock feel to it, and I've just been really loving that lately. <laughs> Well, let's go out on that track. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. And come back next week when we have Lindsay Zolads, Julianne Escobedo-Shepard, and Letitia Harris. That is a murderer's row right there. Mm-hmm. Talking about... <laughs> they're going to be talking about the albums that changed their lives and uh, about finding your identity as a young person, especially as it relates to feminism. And if you want to read all the wonderful stuff that we've published so far in Turning the Tables, you can go to npr.org slash turningthetables. For NPR Music, I'm Ann Powers. And I'm Marissa LaRusso. It's All Songs Considered. <laughs>